0: would and turn to the book of Habakkuk in your Old Testament there the book of Habakkuk and we're going to read chapter number two together tonight and we are studying the book of Habakkuk over the three or four week time span it's not a very long book it takes you just a few minutes to read it and I, I wonder we asked we talked last week about Reading that some over the next few days to help prepare our hearts. I hope that you've been able to do that, at least go back through chapter one or read through the book a few times over these last few days. And we're asking the Lord to speak to us through it. Habakkuk does not have a Christmas theme in terms of it. it's not even necessarily a book directly about the, the coming Messiah prophesying explicitly of Jesus and how he would be born. Um, But it is a Christmas book in the sense that it is God speaking to his people saying, I see that things are not right. I see that things are not the way that they should be. I have not changed my plan. And if you will wait, you will see all things come to pass. You'll see all things become new. And while we, not like the people of Israel, are not waiting for a coming Messiah in the way that they were, we wait for a returning Messiah, a Messiah that has already come and died and perished for the world, yet then was raised to new life so that we would not perish because of our sins. And in being raised to new life, he's ascended in the presence of Jesus, and God speaks to our hearts tonight as we think about Christmas season and Advent and waiting, and we're in an Advent of our own waiting for God to return and to make things right and new. And just like they were, God is saying to us, I see the world. I see that things are broken. I see that things are not right. Just wait. We took that theme from chapter 2, verse number 3. We'll read there again in just a moment. I want you to look, if you would, at at Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'll open with a, a thought or a quote, really a story. Uh, Some of you have read uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series, and if you've read those books, there's a portion of the third book as things are sort of beginning to wrap up, and there's a quote that stands out in my mind, I think kind of carries the theme of what God is saying to Habakkuk, and what is also being said to us today. And in the book, the main characters have been fighting, and they've been trying to go back and forth, and there's been darkness, and it seemed like The evil side was going to win and then suddenly the good side triumphs and things are sort of finished and the book is sort of wrapping up and dwindling away and there's a a primary character in it named Sam and he thought that his good friend Gandalf had died, he thought he was dead. And he wakes up after a brush with death himself in that moment and he's unsure of where he is and what's happening and he sees his friend standing alive. And he looks at him and he says, oh, I thought you were dead. And he pauses for a moment. He says, but then again, I thought that I was dead. And then he asks him this question. He says, is everything that is sad going to become untrue? And I want you to think about that for a moment. Everything sad becoming untrue. And whether we understand it or realize it or not, that is exactly what the Bible teaches us is going to happen. Not simply that things are going to, uh, a switch is flipped and then good things are going to come into our lives, but rather that God is going to redeem and make right even the worst moments of our life. There is going to be glory found in them. Though we don't understand it right now, we will see those bad and negative and sorrowful moments made untrue through the gospel of Christ. And that all things work together for our good. And with that in mind, I think that is what Habakkuk chapter 2 is saying. God is telling his people through his prophet, just wait. Bad things are going to become untrue. And we see that in verse number 1. Notice Habakkuk is speaking. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. And will watch to see what he will say unto me. And what I shall write... Uh, what I shall answer, excuse me, when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, okay, and now for the rest of Habakkuk 2, it is God speaking to his prophet and ultimately to his people and even to us today. And here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. Write the vision, make it plain upon tables, and carve it out, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, But at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith, yea, also because he transgresseth by wine he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home who enlargeth his desire as hell. And, as, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his? How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? because thou hast spoiled many nations all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his own to his house that he may set his nest on high that he may be delivered from the power of evil thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. He's given us one woe or warning. Now we see three more in quick fashion. Verse 12, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord." as the waters cover the sea. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunk also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy force can be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beast which... Uh, make them afraid because of men's blood and for the violence of the land and of the city and of all that dwelleth therein. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusted therein to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith unto to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver." And there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's ask the Lord to help us to see the hope and the glory. This is his word to us. And let's not be lost in it tonight, but let's seek his truth. Father, thank you for this word and may you teach us from it. We trust you for these next moments in our spirit and in our lives. Make your spirit evident to us. And we pray this by the power of your son's name, Jesus. Amen. I want you to look back, if you would, at the chapter. We won't read it all again tonight. That is a mouthful, is it not? And again, kind of a midweek in December, reading what feels like judgment and darkness and doom. But in actuality, this is God telling his prophet and his people, I am still in control I am watching and alert far more than even you are, and I will make everything right and new. And we see that last week we looked at Habakkuk 1, which begins with Habakkuk's cry to the Lord. The prophet starts out by saying, how long do I have to cry out that you're not going to hear me? And why is it that you're making me see all this evil around me from my own people, from your own people? And he cries out to the Lord and he asks those two questions. How long and why is this happening? And we compared those to the question of our own lives, about our own lives and the world around us. How long is the Lord going to wait to make things right? We are crossing, if we haven't already, they estimate that by the end of the year there will be 8 billion people on the earth with 8 billion people's worth of problems and darkness and heartache and trouble. Though there's goodness and glory in this world, isn't it amazing how much darkness and brokenness can overshadow that in the moments of our lives? And so we ask, how long, Lord, are you going to wait to make these things right? And why do things happen the way that they do? Remember God's answer in chapter 1, verse 5 through 11. God does not respond the way Habakkuk probably thinks. God says, yes, I've seen the issues. I've seen the wickedness. And I'm going to judge my people's wickedness by raising up an even more wicked nation that is going to bring judgment and justice on my people, hopefully so that their hearts will turn again to me. And then he says, remember all the things that he noted in his omnipresence? He says, I see that they're bitter. I see their success. He he lists all these things about these people, all the wickedness. And it, it clues us in that God's not oblivious to what's going on in the world. If you read back through Habakkuk chapter 1 and note the detail with which God talks about Babylon, it's not that God is only focused on his people and he can't pay attention to the rest of the world. He knows exactly what's going on everywhere in the world. And he reveals that to Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk's next response, so his first question is, how long is this going to last? And why are you doing this? And God says, you, you think it's bad now? Wait. He says, this is, I'm going to do an amazing work. And I'm going to do it in a way that you can never imagine. With a people called Babylon, these Chaldeans, I'm going to raise them up. And remember Habakkuk's response in that last five verses or so of chapter one? Habakkuk, you can kind of see his eyes get big. He's like, but they're way worse than we are. And Habakkuk brings this point up to God, not as though he thinks maybe that God has forgotten, but it's like he hears God say how bad Babylon is. And he's like, yeah, but God, they're even worse than you think that they are. And he says, how is it that you're going to judge one nation that is sinning, but you're going to judge us with an even more sinful nation? And then he says the answer to that, or excuse me, his, he prepares for the answer to that in verse number one. And I want to look at that very quickly. Habakkuk's attitude toward God's answer. Because don't we ask those same questions. God, how long, how long am I going to have to deal with this? Why has this been introduced into my life? Why? And it could be what you have heard on the news. It could be what you have read. It could be in your community. It could be at your job, in your house, in your family, in your physical life. And we ask God, how long... And why are things happening the way that they are? But then notice Habakkuk's attitude. Habakkuk has just pointed out how wicked the Babylonians really are. He asks if God is going to let this injustice seemingly just continue forever. That's the last thing he asks in the the last verse of chapter 1. But then notice this. Habakkuk displays the proper posture in waiting. and And he implies his silence here in verse number 1 of chapter 2. Notice the words, notice the verbs that he he uses. I will stand and set and watch. That's the three verbs he uses. And he kind of gives the idea of standing, watch, like a guard on a tower. The word there is the rock, the fortress. I will stand here. Not I'm going to just go sleep until you're ready to change. I'm going to go just piddle paddle around. I'm going to Fall into despair until you're ready to show me what's going on. He says, God, I have complained and I've poured out my heart to you. And now silently I will listen, I will watch. And, and notice he uses the term for a watchman. He knows he still has responsibility in life. And it is okay. And we said this past week that Jesus sort of, when his when his disciples ask questions, that was one of the main differences between all of Jesus' disciples and the multitudes that followed but rejected him is that the disciples were willing to ask him. They were willing to seek him out. And Jesus always rewarded their interest and their seeking and their chasing after him. And so Habakkuk says, I- I God, I- I'm going to pour out my heart to you and now I'm going to listen. And then notice, not just the posture is right, but notice his perspective is also right. He says, when I am reproved, notice at the end. He says, to see what he will say. I will watch to see what he will say to me. And notice this phrase. And what I shall answer. He says, I'll, I'll consider how to speak to God. Notice, when I am reproved. W- what is Habakkuk assuming here? He is assuming that God is right. He's assuming that God has it under control. He is not saying, God, you have messed up unless you can somehow convince me otherwise. He says, God, I know you're in control, but this is what I see. Correct me. Make me understand what you understand. Make me see what you see. And Habakkuk has the right posture in that he's humble before the Lord. God, I'm going to listen. But he also has the right heart before the Lord because he says, I understand I'm sinful and I am fallible and I am weak and you are strong, mighty, holy and you know all things. So God, I'm going to sit here and wait for you. And you can correct me. I know I'm wrong about this because all I see is evil overcoming. So God, show me your way and your will and your word. I gave you a quote there by F.B. Meyer, a good challenge for us tonight. He says, how often do God's answers come and find us gone? We have waited for a while. We asked the Lord a question. And then thinking there's no answer, we have gone our way. But as we have turned the first corner, the post has come in. God's ships touch our wars, but there's no one to unload them. Is, it is not enough to direct your prayer to God, but we must look up and look out until he gives that blessing on our heads. And he says, Habakkuk he says, I'm going to stand here, I'm going to wait, I'm going to pour out my heart to you, and, but I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to say, God, I'm, I'm going to just send this to you, and if you ever change your mind, you can come let me know. He says, God, he is begging God. clarity and for his mind and notice the mercy of God he says God I don't understand what you're doing but I know that you are right in all things so please speak and correct me notice this sometimes we don't view God rightly because we don't want to or we don't think that we need correction for our thoughts Have you ever wondered that about your own life, about your own family, about your own circumstance, about the darkness of the world that is going on around you, about the confusion of someone else's life, a neighbor or a friend, a family, someone that you've been pouring into and you can't understand what and how God is working in that circumstance. And we don't want to change our mind about it. We think we've got it all figured out. And we look through God's word, trying to figure out where he agrees with us. That is not how this relationship works. Habakkuk stands back and says, God, correct me. And sometimes we say, why will God not answer me? One, sometimes, as we said last week, because we're not listening. Because we're not actively seeking him. And then sometimes, because we've already convinced ourselves in our mind that what we think is right. That we think that God's got to fix this. God's got to do something different for it to actually work. And God may be trying to do something completely aside from what's in our mind. He is not the one that needs to fix course, but rather our minds need to follow and fall in line with His sovereignty. And then notice God's attitude in His answer. In verse number 2, He gives us this. He says, The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. I love this phrase. He he tells us that that his plan doesn't change, but notice how he starts it. He says, write it in stone. What is something about writing something in stone? You generally can't change it. it. It can't be fixed. It can't be altered. And so when God says, I perfectly carve my will out into your life and into this world and if you will trust me you will see and notice i love this phrase he says that he may run that readeth it now when you first read that phrase what i pictured in my mind i'll be honest first thing i read it was like somebody's going to read god's prophecy and they're going to run away (laughs) like that's what i picture it is like the big bad wolf that comes and he speaks to the three little pigs in the rough, gruff voice. And so they all run in fear. That's not what he's saying. The word where it says that, that he may run, it gives the idea of advancing, that he might make it, not not limping and not crawling. But he says, write it in stone so that the people that hear and read my word, that they'll be able to get up and run and have progress, and in their minds and in their hearts, they will be able to push forward in this life by trusting and and having faith in me. It's the opposite of running in fear. He says, write it down in my word, so that as people read it, they get up and run in confidence in their God. And as you read chapter 2, to be honest, there's there's some tough stuff there. There's some This darkness is talking about destruction that's going to come and all these different things. But God says, I am in control. Read this and have faith and confidence in me. And notice what he says about his plan. He says his plan is unchanged, verse number three, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. God's answer to us is often in an age beyond our own. You say, how do you know this? There is in all likelihood, when, Bab- when the words of chapter 2 come true, physically first to Babylon, when they happen, Habakkuk's dead. He's gone. It's going to be, even if, even if the ransack of Jerusalem happened the next day, it's going to be 70 years before Israel is ever set free. So the truth is, God is speaking a word of hope to Habakkuk for, a, for years and a generation beyond his own. And sometimes in our own lives, we want God's evidence for now. But often God's promise is for the future. It's for our future of eternity. It's for our future of others. It's for what He has in His eternal plan. Faith is the evidence of things what? Not seen. The things that, don't, that aren't right in front of you. And so He says it's for an appointed time. It hasn't changed It is true, but but notice it says, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. I love that phrase. He's saying God's word and God's promise are always true. And I want you to notice this. He uses, in our Bible tonight, in English there, it says, it uses the word tarry twice. Notice it says, though it tarry. Let's take out the little middle phrase. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Though it tarry, notice the last phrase, it will not tarry. Is God contradicting himself? Those two words are actually two different words. You see that there in your notes. The first is "maha" and the second is "akar." One means to linger, the very first one. So read it that way. Though it linger, and then the second one means to, to kind of lag behind and be late. Notice what he says about his promise. Here's what God says. Though it's lingering, it won't be late. Though my promise in your mind and by your view of time has been delayed, it is not behind. It is perfectly in God's timing. And notice God what God desires from us. He says, I haven't changed my plan. It is true. It's perfect in its timing. And here's what I ask for you. Notice this phrase. Wait for it. He wants patient faith from us. A relentless desire. The word wait there means it's not like you waiting in the waiting room at the doctor and dreading when they call your name to come back and you're waiting impatiently. The word wait is sort of like your kids are waiting for Christmas morning. You men are waiting for Christmas dinner. You know, whatever it may be. The word wait there means to long for. He's saying long for this, want it, and wait for it. See, Israel, God's people, they had this bad habit Of wanting things that God never promised, and wanting things that God did not want for them. Remember, Jesus comes and they keep asking him over and over and over, when are you gonna set up a kingdom? When are you gonna like make give us food and 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 drive out Rome? When are you gonna do all that? Jesus dies and raises from the dead, and in Acts they ask him again, so now are you gonna do all those things that we thought? Why? Because they're claiming a promise that God never made and they're wanting something for their lives that God didn't indicate or or design for their lives. And so he says, patiently wait and long for my plan, not for your own. Boy, is that difficult, is it not? We sit here tonight, we read a prayer list a, a few moments ago, and there are people that are physically ill or struggling. There has been death even within our own church congregation this week. And there's some with the outlook toward that in their own family and more even beyond that. And we we ask the Lord, why, how long? I can't I can't do this. God. Why? And and our hearts are burdened. And God continually says, we have a short term vision. We want God to fix it now. And we rarely long for what God has promised. What God promised Israel was very different than what they wanted. And let me ask us tonight, what we want is often very different than what God has told us to long for. Like God wants us to long for eternity. He's put eternity in our hearts. We're made to be forever beings, to live in His presence, to live in His favorable mercy and grace for all of eternity with joy resplendent, satisfied in Him, How in the world do we not long for that? And I don't say it rebuking like I've got it figured out and you haven't. I go There's some days where it snaps into my mind and I think, I am running like a gerbil. I don't know why a gerbil would be in a hamster wheel, but like a gerbil in a hamster wheel. He broke into the hamster's house and got on his wheel, I guess. But I'm running (laughs) this rat race of life wanting cheap stuff. Like I just want good health and I want no problems and I want no financial issues and I want stuff to be taken care of. And God is saying you can long for something so much better. You can pray for it. And notice then what God answers. He says first, I'm going to address your question Habakkuk. He says now my, my plan hasn't changed. so I shouldn't have to repeat this too but, but I'm going I'm to tell you. And he tells us first some things about his character. He says that God sees and discerns the hearts of all men. Verse number four Behold his soul, which is lifted up. What is being lifted up? It's pride. Behold the prideful person. He says, God looks in and realizes that he is not right, he's not upright in him. He's saying, God sees the proud person and realizes that what is going on inside is not always what is displayed outside. In fact, God sees the sin of all men's heart. He's speaking to Israel and he's also speaking to Babylon both. And he says, Pride has been lifted up in your heart. And I see that and that you are not right. Notice the soul of the proud is not right inside. God sees the pride of unbelievers, he sees the pride of our world. And then notice the end of verse 4 But the just shall live by his faith. Does that sound familiar? It should. That phrase is all of Scripture. We won't turn there for time's sake tonight. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Where is that told to us? In a chapter of Romans that is beginning to introduce to us how we can be justified, how we can be made right. And what does it say in that chapter? The just shall live by faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. In the middle of, of Paul's discourse about Christian living, how should we live? And in Galatians 3, verse 11, here's what he says. The just shall live by faith. Then you go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 38, where it's speaking about, we all know, Hebrews 10 is talking about what? It's talking about faith. And he says, how shall we live? And it says in verse 38, the just shall live by faith. You see that in Romans 1? It's talking about being justified. How are we justified? When we live by faith. Galatians 3 telling us how to live. How should we live? We should live by faith. Hebrews 10, talking about faith, how should it be applied to our lives? We should live by faith. And he says the difference between the proud person who is broken inside and the justified man is that he lives claiming faith in the Father. Notice, I give you a a quote there by Martin Luther. You can read it at some point on your own. There's a story that is told of Martin Luther. You know that he was a Catholic man, a, a, a monk that... At one point he went and traveled to Rome from near where he lived in Germany and he traveled to Rome and when he got there, like a lot of things that Rome had done, he did a lot of the touristy things throughout Rome and he he was all excited as a monk to see all the Roman Catholic stuff and all the things that the church had done and somewhere there, and God had already been working in his heart, and somewhere there, there was supposedly a set of stairs that they had Uh, that they had gotten that uh, was from Pilate's Judgment Hall. Evidently they had brought it, you know, probably not true like a lot of artifacts, but they had brought the stairs from Pilate's Hall, and supposedly those are the stairs that Jesus had climbed. And the Pope had said, if you come, you can get an indulgence if you climb those stairs, but you have to climb them on your knees, and you have to kiss each step as you go up. And the story is told that as Martin Luther climbed those stairs, it hit him somewhere along the way. And you have the quote here that this phrase impacted him in his mind, and it hit him. The just are supposed to live by faith. And this is not faith. This is ignorance. This is my own works. I'm not justified by myself. I'm justified by the mercy and grace of God. And so that's what, G- that's what the Lord is speaking to Habakkuk. Look, I see the pride of my own people and of the world. And I'm calling you to live by faith. What was that faith? That God would keep His promise. For us in salvation, of course, and then for His promises physically. Notice God describes the proud and their end. And the rest of the chapter we'll just walk through quickly. Notice it says they trust their status and their celebration, their own feelings in verse 5. It says, He that transgresseth by wine, He is a proud man. It kind of gives the idea of feasting and celebrating and and he, he thinks that all things are under his control. Notice the middle of verse five, neither keepeth at home. What does that mean he' doesn't, he can't rest. The proud person he trusts his own status, he cannot rest and find peace. He cannot be satisfied. Notice he gives the description. he says, "As is death and cannot be satisfied." But notice how the tone turns in the next few verses, and they su- God notes that they succeed and they gain falsely. verse six. Shall not all these take up parable against him, taunting proverb against him? Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? We wonder sometimes, God, don't you see these people profiting, not in a good way, by their own pride, by their own sin, taking from others, all sorts of sin to to build themselves up and succeed? Don't you see that? And God is saying here in chapter 2, I absolutely see it. And they can expect to be punished and held accountable. Verse seven: Shall they not rise up suddenly? That shall bite thee. I think this is. I think. I think it's hilarious. It says that they shall rise up suddenly. That bite thee. That's sort of a euphemism. They that bite thee. You know that what phrase they would use that for? They would use that phrase for creditors. Let me think in for a moment. He said, "They that bite thee." Everyone would have known. These are the people that have lented you. That, that, that have lent to you. And in this case, he's saying, those that you have taken from, borrowed from, now you view it as you've stolen it and changed who possesses it. God views it as you've taken from something that's not your own, and it will be made right. He says, they, they're going to rise up against thee. It says, notice at the end, it says, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. Now My mom and my wife are neither one here. So children, you may laugh at that phrase. But what it means, when it says booties, it's meaning like pirate, they take the plunder He says, you're going to be the plunder. You're going to have things taken back from you. Because God is in control, even over the wicked. Then God gives these four warnings. And I hope that you'll read back through them for the detail. But we will cover them quickly tonight. Notice the warnings. And this is not just a warning for Babylon. I just want you to look at them before we read them. Here's the three woes or the three warnings. The word woe literally means, hark, pay attention, look. And then notice the warnings. He warns about four things. Greed, violence, deceit, and idolatry. Now think about it for a moment. He's talking about Babylon. But remember who Babylon's taking over. Israel, God's people. What had God pled with Israel? What are some of the things that throughout Israel's history, from the time that they come out of Egypt all the way to the time that Jesus comes. What did God continually plead with them for? Don't be greedy. Don't don't take what you don't need. Remember the commands as Israel is wandering around the wilderness when they first get into the promised land? Don't be consumed by greed and a need to have what everyone else does. Give us a king. Give give us more. Give us all the land. Give us all these things. And God warns against greed. And then ironically, one of the greediest nations that ever was raised up is who conquers them. God had warned his own people about their violence toward each other, about their fighting and about their odds toward back and forth from within families and then from within the people. And now one of the most violent nations and empires that ever existed comes in as God's tool of wrath. They had been warned, Israel and their leaders had been warned about deceit, right from the very first king. Saul, Saul, did you do what I asked you to do? Of course I did what God said. Then why do I hear sheep? Uh, and then there's deceit over and over and over. And then idolatry. How many times did God say to his people, I, the Lord, am your only God. And now this wicked nation is risen up against him. And sometimes, I want to parallel for a moment, sometimes the things that God's people see as most wicked in the world, they mirror in their own hearts don't we we see the evil that's not hidden and we accuse and we and we fuss and we fight and yet sometimes we don't see it in our own hearts even though the holy spirit has tried to tell us that it's there we see the sin of others but not the sin of ourselves notice a few things in verses 9 through 11 it says that Speaking of greed, there's this desire for security. He says, if I build up, verse 9, so that I can be delivered from the power of evil. Isn't it interesting? There's this sinful desire. If I take and get all the things that I need, then I'll have security, freedom, and independence. That's what Israel wanted. But ultimately, the sinful pursuit of those removed all three of them from their lives. Sometimes we want, we just think, if I could just have this, if I could just have that, And we we trust in things that are not God. And we think that they're going to give us security and freedom and independence in this world when really God intended for those to only be found in Him. Notice the sinful desire for those things and what we think that God gives. Those things do not. Then He warns against violence. And God tells us in verses 12 down through verse 14 that anything that's gained can be removed in a moment. Notice... He says, Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the people, by the Lord of hosts, that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? No, notice what he's saying there. Isn't it by God's control? And he says the people, he means the nation of Israel or any nation, ends up struggling just to have fire? Or, or they work and work and work and don't gain anything, it's useless. That can be under God's control. They're raised up and then God can wipe out He says, what you think you've gained is not yours. And then he warns against deceit. What you cover is not hidden. This cup of deceit, notice that he phrases it. He says, he's talking about how, he says they've gotten their neighbor drunk to take advantage of them. And he said, the same is going to be done to you. Notice the end of verse 16. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. He says, you've used one cup To deceive those around you into thinking one thing and blessing. God's going to take that from your hand and hand you his own cup. And it's going to be wrath and judgment and punishment. What is God saying? I see all and I do not forget. Notice the final one. He gives a warning against idolatry. He says, first, what you have can't save you. What you've won is not yours. What you've covered is not hidden. And what you worship is not alive. I want you to think about this. In verse 18, it's a, this is one of the best summaries in all of Scripture about idolatry. Now, he's speaking of actual idols being worshipped, but notice, what profit the graven image that the maker, the one carving it, had graven it? The molten image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusted therein to make them idols. He, he says, what, what profit does it have to carve something out and then pray to it? You just made it. Like you got it out of the woods. A couple days ago. Maybe you let it dry. A month ago, it was growing on a tree. And now you're asking it to bless and change your life. That's silliness. Verse 19, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, and to the dumb stone arise. He says you're looking at a piece of wood and a piece of stone, pleading with it to bring something into your life that only God can bring. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver. Notice this phrase. There's no breath in the middle of it. There's nothing in it that lives. Now we look at that and point to the Old Testament. We look at people and say, that was so silly to look at an idol or a figurine or a statue and pray to it and ask it to give something that, o- a tribute to God, something that only belongs to Him. Then how silly are we when we trust our work and our job and our money and our house? and our fame, and our power, and our friendships, and our relationships, and what we have built. And we ask from them things that only God can give. We tell, we tell what we have in our lives, satisfy me. Wife, husband, kids, satisfy me. When that was never God's intention. We tell our job and the things that we want or the things that we desire, if I could just have that, I'd feel secure. Give me that security, you idol. Though we wouldn't say that with our mouth. But God says, "I, I alone can give these things. He's warning His people. God reminds us that men often look to the work of their hands and they give it devotion and glory that only belongs to God. Men often look to the work of our hands for blessing that can only come from God. We often seek to get out of the works of our hands reasoning and justice that is found in God alone. You see that in the world and culture society today? We can create reason. We can form justice, but it's only found in God. And we know, of course, Babylon's not the only one that dealt with this. It was God's people. But notice the final reminder, in verse 20, when we'll be done. God reminds us of his place in our position, verse twenty. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before it. He says, you have tried to get from stuff what only God can do in your life. You have tried to have from the circumstance of your life. You've tried to control the circumstances of your life to make yourself comfortable You've tried to control the circumstances of your life to numb yourself to the things around you and in the world. You've tried to find in your circumstance what only God can give. And where is He? He is in His holy temple. Now He's not talking just about the the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. He's talking about His position reigning and ruling over all of the universe. He says, Jehovah, this God... And there's this contrast here with idolatry. Notice in verses 18 and 19, when it's man's way, man talks and God listens. Now, not the real God, the idols. Man talks and lifeless gods listen when there's idolatry. How often do you feel like that in your life? That we're talking to God, but things that we want aren't happening or circumstances aren't changing. Sometimes it's because we're seeking in the wrong place what only God can provide. So in idolatry, man's way, man talks, God listens. In God's way, God talks, man listens. Notice the end of verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. What should the response be? Let the earth keep silence before it. Tonight, I wonder, and I'm not trying to speak some sort of Zen, weirdo meditation. But I'm telling you, holy, righteous silence. How often do we have that in our lives? We get up, we do our devotions, we read our Bible, we go to work, we come home, we cook, we maybe peddle with a project, we do something with our kids, we go to bed, and our day was filled Doing and talking and praying, even, but not much listening. And I'm not saying you're going to sit and listen and hear the audible voice of God come down in some spooky way, but often we don't sit And I, it, I've been convicted of this in my own life and trying to change and work into this. There is not much time in a normal day unless we purposely set it aside to simply listen to the Lord in the quietness of His Word in the softness of prayer that doesn't always have to be words going up, but can be just the Spirit of God laying and pouring into our hearts. And some of us tonight can ask with Habakkuk, why have you been talking to me? Why have you been doing things the way that you're doing? God, I don't get it. But with the right Spirit of Habakkuk, we can listen and say, now teach me. And when our heart is right before Him, He speaks and he teaches. You see that final quote. He says, through it all, the point's proven. Habakkuk couldn't understand why God would judge a sinful nation by an even more sinful nation. But God reminds Habakkuk of his wisdom and his strength and of his ultimate triumph over the wicked. Just wait, God says. God knew Babylon was filled with evil. God knew that his own people were filled with evil. But the Lord knew exactly how to deal with it with them all. Maybe we've questioned the Lord recently. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. We'll be dismissed with prayer in just a moment. But maybe your heart's been busy, busy, busy. And your mind has been crushed by the weight of its thoughts. And there have been many words and so few answers. And God is telling you Just like he told Habakkuk in verse number three. It may seem like my timing's not right. It might seem like my plan has changed. But just wait. Long for it. Desire it and want it. And I will keep my promise. We're going to be dismissed with prayer tonight. Father, your word is true. And our hearts are often filled with lies. Lies that people and things and stuff might change us and make us better or feel different. And we think if my circumstance was just better, I would maybe even have a better relationship with God. I would enjoy life more. There's people in the room tonight that attest that great wealth and success and freedom of living does not satisfy. And there's others that can cry out that the heartache and pain of trouble, of circumstance, can leave us wanting just the same. Both positions can find their rest in you. May we wait May we long for your coming as we celebrate this Christmas season, looking back and remembering the wonderful fulfillment of your promise to your people that just they longed for a Messiah and then eventually they forgot him and were distracted. And Lord, we wait and we want to long for you, but we're often distracted. Give us the desires of our hearts place them and we'll humbly thank you for it in jesus name amen you can be dismissed tonight if if uh, you can help with again the the Doughties reception again please let the office know or myself know either one and that'll be a big help if you have any more questions about that you can contact the office we're praying for you this week and hope that you have a, a, a wonderful blessed week uh, John and Melissa and family, we're praying for you all too. And we love you.